Jesus often asks trick questions. One of the reasons why I like to ask trick questions about baptism and prophets is is that Jesus likes to ask trick questions. I, I get it from him. His are better, of course. Sometimes my trick questions aren't very good at all, and sometimes they backfire. Jesus' trick questions never backfire. They always work. They always reveal what Jesus wants them to. They always get people thinking while confounding those who need confounding and helping those who need helped. Jesus asks one of his tricky questions in this story. Did you catch it as Keegan was reading? John says that Jesus asked this question on purpose to test his disciple, Philip. And I think we can learn from that tricky question for our lives today. Let's see where it came from. We've reached John chapter 6, and we're going to be here in John 6 for a few weeks. There's quite a lot here in this chapter. Two astonishing miracles right in a row, and then an important explanation of what those miracles mean, and then a key moment of decision. Today, we're just going to make it through the big first miracle. It's one of the biggest miracles that Jesus ever did. It shows up in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only miracle, except for the resurrection, that shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it was probably the most public of all of Jesus' miracles. It was seen by the most people at once, though they might not all have realized that it was happening. Keegan has already read it to us, but, and we've probably all heard it before many times, But we should still try to put ourselves into the story as it unfolds and not as we know how it's going to turn out. We especially should try to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus' disciples named Philip and Andrew and John, who would later write it all down and we read it here in his book. The location of this story is the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Look with me now at John chapter 6 verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. Now, do you have the setting of this picture in your mind? John says that this took place sometime later than the events of chapter 5. Chapter 5, it's been a while now since we were in chapter 5. Anybody remember chapter 5? It's been about a month, actually. It was about the healing at the pool of Bethesda, the man who hadn't walked for 40 years. And then the mind-blowing things that Jesus taught there about his father and about himself. Remember John chapter 5? In John chapter 5, the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem decided they want to see Jesus killed because of what he was saying about himself in John chapter 5. So Jesus has gone north again and has been teaching some more and apparently healing sick people. He's been growing in popularity up there in the north. The crowds are forming and following. He can't seem to go anywhere without the crowds following him around. He's more popular than Taylor Swift. But John says that the crowds aren't following him for the right reasons. It's not because of who he is, but because of his power. Did you catch that in verse 2? 
A great crowd of people followed him because he was the Son of God and God the Son. No, because they saw the miraculous signs he performed on the sick. Now some of them may have genuine faith, but all of them were following after the power. We've seen this kind of dangerous faith before, back in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, where they were focused on the power of Jesus instead of the person of Jesus. And now there's a lot of them. His popularity is mushrooming, and the crowd is getting hungry. Now, John doesn't tell us very much about this particular day, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. This has been a very long and hard day for Jesus and his disciples. The other Gospels tell us that this was the day that Jesus found out that his cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist, had been killed. And Jesus and his disciples have been on the go so much this day that they haven't had a moment to eat. And they've been followed everywhere they go like the the beetles in a hard day's night. Jesus has just pulled his team together on a hillside for a break probably near the Golan Heights. And it's the time near the Jewish Passover feast in Jerusalem. So everybody is excited about the holidays and are going to head down to Jerusalem to take part in the big national festivities. There's always fervor at this time of year. And these, this big crowd finds Jesus and heads straight towards him. And did I mention they're hungry? It's at this moment that Jesus asks his trick question. Harry knows the answer. He's not trying to figure something out. He asks his question to test. He asks his question to teach. He asks his question to get his disciples thinking and at the same time to reveal their hearts. Look with me at verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd Coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So it's a trick question. He's not actually asking Philip to take charge, he's just seeing what's in Philip's mind, what's in Philip's heart. Philip is from Bethsaida which is not very far away. So he probably knows what's available. Claire's like, when do I get to eat, right? Yeah, she's hungry too. So he says, he says, Phil, Phil, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Phil says, I don't know. It's really far to the nearest Walmart. They're putting in a Dollar General here soon. But there's not enough food in the DG for all these people. And there's a lot of people. In fact, that's all that Philip can think about. All Philip can see is how many hungry people are coming this way. Look at verse 7. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. See, Phil's got his calculator out, right? He's like, okay, the square root of this and that. Punching in the numbers. If If we had 200 days' wages, that's what a denarii is. It's a day's wage. How much do you make in a day? How much do you make in six months, half a year? This is a little bit more than that. This is eight months' wages, okay? He says, if we had eight months' wages, we still couldn't do it. 
We couldn't feed all these people. That's Philip's answer to the trick question. How do you do? He's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with his math. He's thinking. The sermon title for today, by the way, is taken from verse 7. It's just two words. Give me the sermon title, Roy. Thank you. Just two words. Enough bread. And for Philip, that's, that's a question. Give me the next slide, Roy. Enough bread? Question mark? Eh, I don't see how it's possible. We can't do it. We're going to have to send them all home. They're all on their own. I don't know why they're even here. I know they're here to see you, Jesus, but let's send them home. Now, Andrew, another one of Jesus' disciples, has been networking. He's been working the crowd. He, he's, a, he's a people person. He's like Joe Quick. Joe knows everybody. Everybody knows Joe, right? Everybody know Joe? Anybody here doesn't know Joe, right? Am I right? I'm right. Andrew knows everybody. And he's been working the crowd, and he finds this kid. And this kid has a little bit of food. Look at verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Philip's like, doesn't help at all. Andrew's like, yeah, not far enough. That's Andrew's answer to the trick question. How did he do? There isn't enough bread. There won't be enough bread. We can't do what you are asking, Jesus. Now, we all know what's going to happen, right? Keegan's already read it to us. It's easy for us to judge their answers harshly. But we all do the same thing, don't we? Jesus asks us to do something, and we say, that sounds impossible. Can't be done. What should they have said? How should they have answered when Jesus asked his trick question? Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Well, it might have been good to say, I don't know, Jesus, but I'll bet you do. I I can't get that much bread, but I suspect you can. It's obvious they haven't really learned who Jesus is yet, right? They're missing an asset as they take stock. Philip didn't put Jesus into his calculator. The one who turned water into wine saved the wedding. Now, the wedding guests didn't know it, but the disciples did. Remember that from chapter 2? The one who's been healing all these people? Maybe he can do something about the food shortage, you think? The one who said that God is his Father And whatever the Father does, the Son also does? Because the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does? That might include creating food for and feeding His creatures. So let me phrase this question a different way and make it an application question for us today. I don't have any points this morning. Some of you are like, that's no different. 
never has a point. I only have a question for you this morning. When Jesus asks us to do something, where will we find the resources to do it? When Jesus asks you to do something, where will you find the resources to do it? Well, we try to come up with them all kinds of places, don't we? We look into our bank account. We lean on the government. We turn to our family. We roll up our sleeves and trust in our muscles. And eventually we get to say, I think it's impossible. Can't be done. Because we have our eyes fixed on ourselves. And we aren't counting on Jesus. Let me give you some examples. What is something that Jesus is asking you to do as we head into the year 24? By the way, I don't think we have to say 20 anymore, right? Nobody's wondering if we mean 1924, right? So we can just say 24. I'll see if I can keep on doing that this message. What is something that Jesus is asking you to do as we head into 24? I've said it before, and I'll probably have to say it again. Jesus is saying to me, don't worry, Matt, in 24. Don't worry. You don't have to. He said it to me in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? It doesn't do any good. And I'm like, I'd sure like to try. I'd like to see. Maybe if I just worry a little bit, I could prolong my life an hour. There's so many things that can go wrong in 24. For our family, for our health, for our finances, for our church family, for our nation. This is probably another tumultuous national election year. Are we going to have another 2020 or something worse? And Jesus says, hey, Matt, I told you don't worry. Where are you going to get the resources to obey my command to not worry this year? And I say, I don't know. I don't think it can be done. I don't think there'll be enough bread. But that's me. You folks don't have that problem. Let's do another one. Jesus is asking us to talk about him with our unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. We are called to be bold and do evangelism, share the gospel. Donnie said it last week, I will tell all of your deeds. You going to do that this year? You going to tell people about Jesus and his good news? Where are you going to find the resources to do that? Hmm. I don't know. I, I don't really want to. I want to until it's time to. I don't think it can be done. I just don't have an evangelistic personality. I haven't been trained. I wouldn't know what to say. What if they start arguing with me? Can't be done. There won't be enough bread. And Jesus is saying, did you forget about something in your calculations? Did you forget about me? 
We have a small missions team that we believe has been called to go visit our missionaries in Malawi on our behalf. It's going to cost approximately $7,500, and we have almost exactly one-third of that with 209 days to go. And I hear Jesus asking, Keith, Steph, Mary Beth, where are you going to get the funds to follow me to Africa in August? He asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Here's the principle. If the Lord requires something, the Lord will provide it himself. If the Lord requires something, the Lord will provide it himself. Did you ever notice in the scriptures that whenever there's a command near it, there's always a promise? I think that's about a rule of the scriptures. Maybe you might have to go a couple chapters to find it. But when there's a command there's almost the, always in the near vicinity the promise of its supply. How to do it. If the Lord requires something, the Lord will provide it himself. Now, he uses lots of things to do it, including his people. But he doesn't just send us out there on our own with nothing but our wits and our wills and our works and our own resources. He doesn't just tell us, don't worry. He says, I'm with you. Or as Donnie said last week, the nearness of God is my good. He doesn't just tell us, make disciples of all nations. He says, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age as you accomplish my mission. I mentioned the election season. Here's another command that Jesus has laid on us as his followers. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And that includes on social media. I think a lot of professing Christians come up to that one and they say, can't be done. Impossible. There will definitely not be enough bread for that tall order. And Jesus is like, have you forgotten about somebody? What is Jesus asking you to do in 24? And where will you find the resources to do it in 24? See, the answer to his trick question is to trust the one asking the question. Because the resources are in him. He is the resources. In fact, he's the bread. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. That's later in this chapter. Right now, at this point in the story, they have just a tiny little bit of bread, five little barley loaves, and a tiny little bit of protein, more like a, a relish of fish, probably just a little salted or pickled bit of relish to go with the dry bread. Barley bread, by the way, was the poorest of poor meals. Uh, it, it was what you fed the animals, and there's only here enough for this little boy. Philip and Andrew think it can't be done. There won't be enough bread. And Jesus says, Time to eat! Call everybody together! Tell them it's dinner time! Look at verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. They're like, Have the people go home, right? No, no, no. He says, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Now we get some numbers for Philip to put in his calculator, right? 
There's about 5,000 of them. Over the holiday, our family got together at my parents' house in Ohio for one last hurrah before they sell it. My brother's family came in, and all of us were there, and we all sat down for one last meal together in the old homestead. I'm so glad it worked out for us all to be there. But imagine if mom and dad didn't go shopping and didn't make dinner for us. The fridge was bare, the oven was empty, and mom came out with a little Happy Meal. And there's 15 of us there sitting around the table, and there's this little Happy Meal. There's 5,000 men at this meal. And that doesn't count women and children, right? So are there 10,000 people here? 15? 20,000 people? We don't know. The Bryce Jordan Center, I looked this up, has 15,261 seats. Anybody been in the Bryce Jordan Center? Okay, most of you. Imagine now that the BJC was full. And somebody said, Everybody sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. We're going to eat now, eat now, eat now, eat now. We have five barley loaves and two small fish. Hope you're hungry. That's the situation. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Roy, give us the next slide. It's not a question. It's an exclamation. Enough bread. Enough bread. Verse 12 says they all had enough to eat. In fact, it's stronger than that in the Greek. Your verse might say it's stronger to indicate that they were all full. They were all satisfied. This was like Christmas dinner at my mom's house. Like if you go home hungry, you're doing it wrong. They had leftovers. They had more than enough bread A lot of people have wondered if there is symbolism in the 12 baskets. Maybe there is. Maybe it has to do with the 12 tribes of Israel or something and the Messianic feast and so forth. But I think it's a lot more simple than that. I think Jesus made sure that that all 12 of the disciples had to carry around a basket afterwards so they got the point of the trick question. Oh yeah, (laughs) there was enough bread there. I repent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'll factor Jesus in next time. We need to factor Jesus into our calculations. It's also like the collecting of the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus will have more to say about that as we go further into chapter 6. But the picture here is abundance. It's blessing. It's, it's overflowing bounty. It is the kingdom. And it's life in Jesus' name. Because of Jesus, they had more than enough bread because Jesus is more than enough. If you have Jesus, then you have more than enough. Like Donnie read last week in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
And if he's our portion, then we will always have more than enough. Amen? Amen. Why did Jesus do this miracle? I think it's obvious he did it out of compassion. The other Gospels, in fact, tell us that explicitly, though John doesn't. I think it's really neat that Jesus did it out of compassion for people who didn't deserve it. And who weren't even necessarily coming in faith. Remember, this crowd is there for the wrong reason. But Jesus isn't like, well, we'll just feed the ones that are coming with the right reason. Of course, he could have told. But he doesn't. He feeds them all. Jesus is so compassionate. He is so gracious and generous. Some of you may struggle to believe in this miracle. You doubt that miracles ever occur. And this is a big miracle. It's a big leap. To believe this, you've got to believe in supernature. Not just nature, but supernature. And God and His power. This is impossible. Unless all the other stuff we learn about Jesus is true as well. In fact, including the fact that He came back from the dead. I believe this story. I believe it happened. I believe there were eyewitnesses, 20,000 of them, maybe, 5,000 men at least. They might not have all known what was going on. I believe that we have it recorded for us in this history book. And I believe this is who Jesus really is. He is this compassionate. He is this gracious. He is this generous. And he's this powerful. He can do this, and he can do so much more. I think one of the reasons why he did this is just to show us who he is. That he is, he's the creator. And he makes bread where there is no bread. Now, it's still a quiet miracle. He doesn't wave his arms and say, abracadabra, and look at me. He just keeps on dividing the food and passing it out, keeps on dividing the food and passing it out. And he provides what he requires. I think he did this not just to be compassionate to his dinner guests, but to show his disciples that he will do for them what he asks them to do. They just have to trust him. And he will provide and provide and provide much more than enough. And therefore, you and I can do whatever he asks us to do because he will provide whatever we need to do it. Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's not just I can do everything. Look at me go. It's I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything he has called me to do in 24, which might include dying a faithful death. Through him who gives me strength. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to see how the crowds reacted to all this. As you might expect, they go crazy. It's really quite humorous and also sad. But we can see in verse 14 which direction they're headed. After the people saw this miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See, it's not his time, and it's not his way. 
He's going to wait for his time and do it in his way. Notice, notice who they think he is. Did you catch that? He's the prophet. Remember what we learned about that just a couple of weeks ago? They are right. Jesus is the prophet. He is more than a prophet, but he is the, a prophet and he is the prophet that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. But they mistakenly thought that meant that they could, in the heat of a Passover feast moment, force Jesus to become the Messiah King that rescues them from the Romans. But Jesus is the Messiah, and he's going to rescue his people. But he's going to start by rescuing them from something much worse than Rome. He's going to rescue them from sin.